Thank you, Blake and Jen. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 14. We'll be in verses 13 to 21 this morning. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. Once you get that, I want you to just either slip your program in there or put your Bible marker in there or whatever, and also turn to chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 25. Matthew 6, 25. We're going to read a passage from there as well, and so just to remind us, and so uh, go ahead and, and have your Bibles open to there so that when we, we read that, it'll be uh, handy to you. Uh, behind our house is uh, a creek bed, and, and the back of our property slopes down a pretty steep embankment to this creek bed, and the boys and I go walking back there all the time, and uh, especially during the winter when the snakes go away. Uh, we go back there in the creek bed, and we start walking down, and, and the creek back there goes a, a long way, all the way to the Black Warrior River, actually, and uh, it's, it's filled with different kinds of waterfalls and little caves and things like this, and it's really pretty neat, and for a young boy, uh, it's like a playground, right? Uh, and so we go walking in this creek bed, and beside the creek bed are these really, really steep embankments. And so as we walk down through this creek bed, there are times where you've got to get up on the embankment, and there are times where it's better to walk down in the creek bed. And in order to get up there, you typically have to grab on to a branch or some sort of thing that's, that's sitting up on the, on the dirt. And so one important lesson that we've had to learn as we walk back there, I've had to teach them, is how to evaluate trustworthy branches, things that are worth putting your weight on and things that are not worth putting your weight on. And unfortunately, we've had to learn this lesson sometimes the hard way. Uh, When things are down and dead, sometimes they look alive. They look like they're just a normal branch. And then when you put your, or even sometimes a big tree, and you put your foot on them and your foot goes straight through them because they're hollow on the inside. They've been dead for some time. I remember one time we were walking down through this creek bed and this branch looked as though it was connected to the ground. And one of my kids, uh, who couldn't say the word trustworthy at the time, uh, grabbed the branch and put all his weight on it. And the branch gave way. And he goes crashing back down into the creek bed. And I said, you all right? And he got up and he brushed himself off. And he said, wasn't trustworthy. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. It wasn't, it wasn't trustworthy. And so uh, the point is, though, we have to learn, and as we walk and we go through life, we have to learn what's worth putting our trust in and what's not worth putting our trust in. And some of the things that appeal to you and, and look to you as though you can put your trust in it end up not being very trustworthy at all. This morning we get to a familiar passage where Jesus is standing before a crowd of people and he is going to multiply Bread and fish for 5,000 families that are there before him. And it proves to us yet again that Jesus is telling us and all of his disciples that he is trustworthy. Let's read our text in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages 
and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage that we've read, no doubt, many times before, I pray that you'd give us fresh eyes to see it again. Convince us of the truth of your word in this wonderful, amazing miracle that Jesus performed before so many. Convict us where we have sinned that we may repent and follow you truly. Do that in your word, we pray. We need your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Jesus is a radical. Now, some might call him a kook or a nut, maybe a religious fanatic, perhaps even a crazy or maybe even a zealous preacher. So Jesus taught some things sometimes that we all might look at and it, that kind of leave us with the response How can he possibly expect us to live that way? He says some things sometimes, I know I'm not the only one, that we read and we go, that just doesn't seem real. How is it possible for me to follow what he's saying here? We remember at the end of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 48, he tells us, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who doesn't leave that verse going, How in the world can we possibly do that? Jesus, you're a zealot. You're a a kook. You're a nut. There's no way that that's possible. Surely Jesus is exaggerating. That's what we tell ourselves. Maybe he's just exaggerating. No one is perfect. But then you read through chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, and he is not just condemning adultery, but just lust. He's not condemning just murder, but anger. Then we hear him telling his disciples in chapter 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And then he says, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And when we think about that in terms of prayer, well, well surely he won't, won't give us all the things we're asking, Right? Surely Jesus is, again, exaggerating. He's being being crazy here. He's being a kook, a zealous preacher. In chapter 6, Jesus says something that's important for us to remember. It comes, I think, in the background of our passage this morning. And this is yet another time where it leaves us in doubt. How can we possibly live this way? It's in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. I want to read this whole passage just so we remember it. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now we read that, but how many of us will be anxious tomorrow about the next day? I will be. How many of us will experience some kind of anxiety, probably even right after we get out of those doors? Probably all of us to some degree or another. So is this just an example of Jesus being crazy, kooky preacher? Or is he giving insight into how much he actually provides for his children? Needless to say, this text, I think, should be in our background. I wanted to refresh it in our minds as we think about Jesus multiplying bread for so many people as Jesus feeds the 5,000. And after Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you may be left feeling like, Jesus, how can I possibly live the way that you're telling me here? How can I possibly have no anxiety and just trust that you're going to provide everything for me? How is that possible? Well, there are many layers, I think, to the feeding of the 5,000 families that I'm going to deal with this morning. And I'm going to start with the most basic and the, most, the, the first most layer that we should understand and we should take with us. And then I'm going to touch on a few more things that this story may also be telling us as we think about this story in a little bit more depth. The first thing that I want us to see is that Jesus can be trusted because he is compassionate. Jesus can be trusted because he is compassionate. So we're told in verse 13 that he says, it says, Jesus heard this and he withdrew. Now I mentioned last week, uh, and I'll say it again, this is most not, this is most likely not about John's death. It's most likely not that he hears about John's death and therefore he with, withdraws. John's death would have happened much earlier than that. And presumably, as the story goes, the disciples immediately came and told Jesus about John's death. So the event that we're looking at here in chapter 14 takes place a little bit later than that. So what is it that Jesus hears and therefore withdraws? What he hears is that Herod has now heard of this Galilean miracle worker, and Herod is convinced that John has been raised from the dead. And the implication is that if Herod thinks that the man he killed has now been raised from the dead and this Jesus is John raised from the dead, then he's even a more powerful threat to his kingdom than John was because this man now possesses the power of a holy man raised from the dead. So what does that mean for Jesus? You're next. How does Jesus know that Herod thinks this about him? How does Jesus know the innermost thoughts of Herod's palace? 
Well, it might be a little bit of a, a stretch here, but there's information given to us in the Gospels. Like in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verse 3, you can write that down and look at it later, we learn of a lady there in Luke 8, 3, that contributed to Jesus' ministry. She actually supplied cash to Jesus' ministry to fund his ministry as he went around the towns teaching, preaching, and healing people. And that lady's husband, her name is Joanna, her husband's name is Cusa, and he was actually the chief of staff of Herod. So what we learn in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus actually has people on the inside. So whether these people are telling Jesus this information or uh, it comes to him by some other means, what we do know is that Jesus knew the inner workings of Herod's palace and it was told to him. And so he was aware that Herod now had his eye on Jesus. And so Jesus is escaping and withdrawing from there. Now, Luke also tells us in Luke 9 that Jesus withdraws to a place called Bethsaida. And that's really important because where Jesus withdraws to is under the tetrarchy, under the rule of a different king. And it's right on the border. And so Jesus withdraws from Herod Antipas's uh, area of rule, and he moves into Philip's area of rule. Now, Philip is not the same Philip that Herod stole his wife in the last passage. Not the same Philip. It gets confusing, I know, because of all the names. This is a different Philip. But he moves over to Philip's rule and reign, and where Philip doesn't probably know who he is or even really care. And so Jesus moves there as a way of withdrawing from the threat of Herod Antipas. So Jesus withdraws to a desolate place. He wants to be alone. And probably due to the fact that the, uh, John had died and then the, the threat of the state is now falling on his own shoulders, he, he's knowing that the course of his time on earth, the cross, if you will, is drawing ever more near to him. There's no more predecessors. John is gone. He's all that's left. The cross is quickly making its way toward Jesus, or perhaps you would say Jesus is making his way toward the cross. Now, typically, Jesus goes off by himself, and he rests, and he prays, probably both. And this time, no doubt, is even more sobering as, he think, as the time draws near for him to take on the cross and die for the sins of his people. Now, the reason that I think this is important is because it allows us a brief glimpse into just how human Jesus is. And I want you to consider that for just a moment. Just how human Jesus is. Now, at the very least, he's tired. And that's something we can all relate to. When we're tired, we definitely don't want to be around a huge crowd of people. We want to be left alone. And it's more than likely he's also sad even at the passing of John, or perhaps saddened at, at what cup he's about to drink from. And like the rest of humanity, when we're anxious or when we're sad or when we're tired or maybe a combination of everything, we want to be alone, hopefully to pray, but at the very least to escape. 
So you can feel the weight. I hope you can feel the weight in verse 13. Really put yourself in the place of Jesus. Feel the weight that he's feeling on your own shoulders as he knows for certain that the government now has their eye on him and they will eventually be in cahoots with the Jews to put him to death. But when you feel that weight, it helps you appreciate fully what happens in the next in the text. The crowds are having none of this Jesus that wants to be alone. They don't want anything to do with that. They, they, they're going to pursue Him. They follow Him on foot. They're bound and determined to track Him down. So He grows across the lake on a boat to the other side. And the Sea of Galilee, you can see across it uh, relatively easily. And so if there's not many people out on the lake, they could probably track where he's at. But nevertheless, they either are seeing him cross the lake or they are knowing where he's going to end up. And so they go to meet him there and they end up where he is headed. Regardless, the crowds are there when he gets to his destination. And now as he steps off the boat, he sees a crowd of people. And now, I don't know about you, but we would probably all be a little bit disheartened as we see this crowd. We're exhausted. We're a little bit frustrated knowing that these people are here and all they want is some of our attention and all we want is maybe a little bit of rest and relaxation and maybe some prayer. But instead, we get a bunch of people pestering us about tending to their needs See, I would be frustrated. You would probably be frustrated. But not Jesus. Jesus, it says in verse 14, had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, do you notice that this doesn't exclude anyone? I don't know if there were some people that didn't get their illnesses cured. But Matthew doesn't tell us about anybody that was excluded. Do you also notice that he spends the rest of the day with them? And we know this because the next verse says, when it was evening. So he spends at least the rest of the day. We're not told how long that was, how much time was left in the day. But it's at least some time that he spends. Now remember back in the Gospel of Matthew when the centurion comes to Jesus and asks him to heal his servant and says, you don't need to come to my house. You can do it from a distance. You remember that miracle? Now what are the odds that Jesus could step off the boat and just kind of put his hand out over the whole crowd and just snap and heal everybody that's there that had an ailment? Suppose he could have. There's nothing stopping him from doing that. But did he do that? Doesn't appear that he did. He doesn't seem to do that either. He spends time with the sick, healing each one of them, going to them personally, it seems. And what is it that causes him to do that? It's his compassion. This isn't the way that I often think of Jesus as compassionate. A lot of times when I see Jesus, I see righteous indignation, going to the temple, turning over the tables, and doing all of those kinds of things. Most of the time, I don't think of Jesus as compassionate. 
This certainly isn't the way that I always think of God the Father, either, as compassionate. Especially when it comes to my whining or my complaining. When it comes to my piddling little anxieties or my frustrations or my little ailments. What are my problems in the grand scheme of things? I live in America. My problems are, at least many times, first world problems. Yet they seem so big to me. But when I bring them to the Lord in prayer, I fight an image in my mind of a God-sized eye roll at all of the things that I'm concerned about, that I'm laying on the altar before God. But you realize that that's not the God that's actually there. That's not the God that you're actually praying to. That's not the God that's actually listening to your prayers. That's not the Jesus that I actually find attending to the deepest concerns of my heart. In fact, 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 says this, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The word for casting in that verse is a transfer of responsibility. That's what it communicates, is a transfer of responsibility. The idea being that the Lord is acting, as it were, like a Sherpa. You know what they are? The ones that carry all the packs up Mount Everest for all the hikers, that carry all the hardest and heaviest burdens that the hikers have. God, as it were, is, like, is acting like a Sherpa who carries the emotional pack of our anxieties up the steepest mountains. And why does he do that? It's, he, Peter says there, because he cares for you. Now, when I think about that, it blows my mind. And I don't know about you, but I think I could stand to dwell on that verse a lot more. That his care for you is not all that different from his compassion on the crowds that he has. Except that his care for you is even in a much deeper sense than what is communicated about his compassion for the crowds. His care for you is somebody that he's personally tied to. That's the meaning of that word. Now, if Jesus feels this kind of pity on the crowds, and if he cares for you, his bride, whom he purchased with his blood, how much more attentive to your needs and prayers is he? In fact, his word reassures us that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. His kindness to you has a, a wooing effect, leading you to fervent affection for the Lord, resulting in repentance of sin. You're not finding there in your prayers a mean and malevolent, vindictive, eye-rolling, sick and tired of you God on the other end. You're actually finding a God who loves you and who cares for you deeply. Our prayers are, by definition, stupid. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. You can't get any dumber than that. 
And yet we have Christ who sits on a throne attending to our need and interceding for us on our behalf. He is kind and attentive. He loves us and he beckons us into a deeper and more faithful communication with him. His word also reasserts many times, like in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It is undoubtedly true that the pagan world underestimates the wrath of God. It's undoubtedly true that the world outside the church drastically underestimates the wrath of God. But I think equally as many Christians underestimate His mercy, His grace, and His abundance of steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord's mercy and grace is seen no more centrally than in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What impedes us from going to God in prayer? I'm asking that as much of me as I am of you. What impedes us from going to the Lord in prayer? The answer is nothing. Nothing impedes you who are in Christ to going to God with your concerns, your anxieties, and yes, even your ailments. Jesus took away all your impediments. On the cross, he absorbs the wrath of God on your behalf. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he is your intercessor. You can go freely to God who loves you, who cares for you, and can you believe it, has no more wrath stored up for you. I had a professor in seminary who repeated this refrain so regularly that I cannot forget it. Even if I tried, he said, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. Let me say it again. What God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. Does he care for your needs? Can he be trusted with them? Can he be trusted with our concerns? Does he care about something as little as my bad day? Yes. Can he be trusted with my grief and my loss? Yes. Does he care about your arthritis and your nerves about the upcoming test? Yes. Can he be trusted with them? To hear those prayers and be attentive to your needs? Absolutely. How do I know that? Because in this scene, Jesus is tired and probably a host of other things are running through his mind and yet he has compassion on the crowds and he spends the rest of his day with them. And it tells us what kind of God is attending to us this very day. Because what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. The second thing that I want us to see in this passage is that Jesus can be trusted because he's powerful. 
There are several things to consider when we're observing this miracle that Jesus performs, and all of it speaks to Jesus' power, every last bit of it. But the disciples obviously realize that it's getting late and that people are getting hungry. And so the decision is that we've got to send people away uh, so that they can, they can eat. And there's a, a ton of people in this scene. Remember verse 21 clues us in that there are about 5,000 men there besides women and children. So it's probably more accurate to say that there were 5,000 family units represented there on the hill. Some men are probably single, maybe, uh, though that would be pretty rare. There were Most of the men probably were married. Probably most of their families were there with them, considering how desolate this place seems to be. And most of them are going to have a whole host of children. I don't know if you know anything about Jews in this day, but uh, procreation was uh, a, a blessing of theirs. And so they, they sought it as the fulfillment of many of God's commands. And so there's... Uh, Tons of families. Needless to say, this is a lot of people. A lot of people. But Jesus tells the disciples something really curious. You give them something to eat. You don't need to send them away. You give them something to eat. Can you imagine feeding this many people? Even if you had the food to do it, can you imagine feeding this many people? Woo! So, all they have are what, five loaves and two fish? Fish, which is seafood, which, as we all know, seafood is not edible, except in the truly desperate circumstances, all right? Which apparently the disciples are in because they've turned to some fish. I don't know how, but they do. Uh, So Jesus has the crowd sit down. And he takes the bread, and he blesses the bread, and he breaks the bread, And he gives the bread. And not only do they all eat, but they're all satisfied. Now, some secularists that are out there, people that don't believe the Bible at all but claim that they do, um, will look at this miracle and they'll explain it away by saying either the people didn't eat a lot at all, so their portions were comparable, you know, like the Lord's Supper that we give, we give the tiny little cracker. It doesn't even taste very good. It's just a little cracker. They say, well, that's, that was like the portions. It was just a tiny little cracker that they had to give. And, and so it's like our Lord's Supper. Others will offer various and sundry other explanations for this miracle, that it, it maybe it wasn't what it appears to be, because after all, this is the reasoning, I've never seen any bread multiplied like that. However, Matthew's word choices here rule out anything other than the bread I assume the fish too, multiplied miraculously so that all ate, first of all, thousands of people, all ate, and all were satisfied. So that couldn't have been tiny little portions. All were Thanksgiving full, it seems like. And what happened afterwards? The disciples take up 12 baskets full of food left over. Well, you couldn't have put the five loaves and two fish in 12 basketfuls if you tried. You certainly can't fill up the baskets. So, Matthew's words leave no other option but to interpret it this way. The bread and the fish literally multiplied, and everybody else is going to have to deal with it. All right? Now, what is this miracle demonstrating for us? What is it showing? 
What is it teaching? Why has Matthew chosen to include this story here? Is it just cool? Wow, look, awesome. As I mentioned at the beginning, there are a few things that I think are probably being communicated here, starting with the most certain, the things that we know we've nailed down. This is for surely what is going on in this text. The first is that we can trust Jesus to provide for our every need because he is capable of providing. The disciples want to exhibit care for the people that are there in the midst. They want to care for them. And how do they instinctively think to care for the people that are there in Jesus' presence? Send them to the local restaurant. They have food. Give them some time to get out there and get a table at the local barbecue place. That's the best way we can care for the crowds. But in reality, Jesus was more sure than the restaurant. Do you understand that? That what they should have done was turn the crowds over to Christ and let him fulfill everything that he wanted to fulfill for them. If need be, and he wanted to dismiss them, let him do it. If he wanted to provide for them, let him provide for them. After all, after Jesus, is, Jesus leaves, what are the disciples going to be doing but turning everybody over to Christ? So why don't they do this now? The best thing that the disciples could have done would have been to turn them over to Christ instead of the nearest food truck. Leaving them to the hands of the Messiah. Trusting Him to provide for every need. So this is first and foremost about Jesus' ability to provide for His people. By the way, we know this for sure because this miracle comes up again in Matthew chapter 16, verses 9 to 11. In that passage, just to fill you in on it, Jesus is telling them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples are getting into the boat, and they think when they hear the word leaven that what he's talking about is bread. And so they begin a discussion amongst themselves as to who brought bread for the trip. And very quickly, these 12 hungry men realize nobody brought bread. I didn't put it in my pack. Did you put it in your pack? No, I didn't put it in my pack. You were supposed to bring the bread. No, you were supposed to bring it. I remember telling you you're supposed to bring it. And Jesus, in the midst of their discussion, interrupts them. And he asks them, do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? What is Jesus saying? Why are you talking about bread in your satchel? Do you not remember that I can multiply bread and feed 5,000 families? Why are you fretting about provisions for the journey? Don't you remember what I've done? So we know that this is meant to be a kind of assurance for the disciple here that you can trust Jesus because the power that he has to provide for his children. Now this brings us all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, does it not? When Jesus tells you, why do you worry about food and water? Why do you worry about clothing? Doesn't God care for you? Isn't he able to provide? Set your minds on the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to them. How can you promise that, Jesus? How how can you possibly promise that? What about when he sends the disciples out two by two to go preaching and proclaiming in the villages around? And he tells them, don't take two tunics. Don't take a money bag. 
Meaning that people will supply for them on the way. How can he possibly promise that? Well, they're now seeing on the hillside how he can promise that. They're now seeing. He's not telling them to merely blindly trust him. He's actually giving them a a, a front row seat to how they know that he is trustworthy. Because in the past, he has multiplied bread to feed 5,000 families. And what God has done in the past is a model and a promise of what he will do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. In fact, next time it's going to be 4,000 families. But as a disciple, I should trust that he can provide even for me. Is my job going to be enough to provide for my family? Is the money going to make it to the end of the month? Jesus is worthy of our trust. But on another level, this is probably also making the case that Jesus, though in the same line of the great prophets of the past, is much more powerful. In 2 Kings 4, 42 to 44. You can write that down and read it later. 2 Kings 4, 42 to 44. Elisha, the great prophet, is brought 20 loaves of barley and he tells his servant to sit the barley loaves before a hundred men and feed them. A hundred hungry men. And the servant in the story asks Elisha, How can I set this before a hundred men? And it feed all of them. They're going to eat me. He doesn't really say that, but that, that's what he implies. And Elisha tells his servant, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he did, the servant did, and they ate and they had some left over. Now, following the death of John the Baptist who is equated to Elijah in the Gospel of Matthew and in other places. It would seem fitting that the next passage in Matthew would show us Jesus who does a miracle similar to Elisha who followed Elijah, except to show the greater magnitude of Jesus' power and authority. This is not 20 loaves for 100 men. This is five loaves for 5,000 families. Finally, There may also be some intentional connection that Matthew is helping us see between this meal that these people share with Jesus, who is the great provider, and the last supper that Jesus shares with his disciples. So Jesus is playing the role in front of these 5,000 families as host for all of them. His table is a field that they're sitting in in the middle of nowhere. And his portions that he has at the beginning are meager, and it seems nowhere near enough to feed 5,000 men, let alone their wives and their children. But in this meal and in the Last Supper, when Jesus plays the role of host, we see a very clear pattern in what he does at the beginning of the meal. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. And those words are repeated every time Jesus plays the host in front of people as he feeds them. 
And so Matthew uses this same pattern of partaking as Jesus plays the host for these people of taking, blessing, breaking, and giving in all of Jesus' meals, not least of which is ultimately the Lord's Supper. But what does that tell us exactly that Matthew connects this miracle to the Lord's Supper? It's that ultimately he will provide something much greater because that bread that is broken represents his own body. And yes, that body will also be enough to cover a multitude. So in order to be seen as a gracious host in the first century, you were to provide enough for the people that were there in your house, and you were to have a little bit left over. In fact, I think that's still a policy today. At least that's what I tell my wife. We need to have a lot left over, right, so that we can eat some afterwards. But you see Jesus providing here not only enough to eat, but that each disciple would have enough to collect a basketful afterwards. And so the disciples who had nothing, or at least not much, before the miracle, now have enough leftovers each to distribute themselves to other people. If our minds are supposed to be thinking about the Lord's Supper when we see this miracle, what do you think those extra baskets are to say to the disciples? But that Jesus is subtly reminding them, when you started this journey, you had almost nothing. And I multiplied it to feed 5,000 families. Now you have a basket full. Go into all the world, baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, you will never run out of bread from heaven. It is enough for the whole world to feast on. But then the question comes to us. Can I trust Jesus, even for my daily food? I think the answer is yes. Jesus even teaches us to pray this in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Can I trust him even for daily provision of food? Yes. But wait, if Jesus can be trusted even to feed me on a regular basis, Can he be trusted to save me? Can he be trusted with my atonement? Ultimately, this is the question that the gospel of Matthew is going to leave you with. Can Jesus be trusted with your atonement? I think the answer is supposed to be yes. He can be. Well, if that's true, if it's true that Jesus can be trusted with my atonement, That right now, the purpose of Christ was to set me apart as holy before the Lord, as blameless before Him in love. Then why do I struggle with guilt so much? Why do I come before the Lord and I think, He hates me? Why do I struggle to come to the Lord in repentance, 
thinking this is the last straw surely for you. You don't want to hear the things that I've done or the sins that I've committed because yet again I've turned to the same things over and over. What is this? But a lack of trust in Christ to carry through my atonement, my forgiveness. What is that? Slapping Christ in the face and saying, no, surely your bread has run out. So many struggle on a regular basis, deal with the same sins that pester us over and over and over again, And it only keeps getting worse because all the while we convince ourselves you're so much further from God than you ever have been in your entire life. Friend, if you are in Christ, you can't be any closer. And the same Jesus that had compassion on the crowds, even when as a man he was tired, is still beckoning you into a closer relationship with him. So then the question is, can can Jesus be trusted through my entire life to actually carry me finally in the final destination to the table of God himself? The answer is yes. The Lord's Supper that we celebrate every six weeks here is meant to communicate Not simply that we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but that one day Christ will distribute the elements himself for all of his people. And I bet they're not going to run out. But it's a multitude that no one can number, Revelation tells us. It's still going to be enough. Jesus isn't lacking, it turns out, in power or mercy. So he can be trusted to even carry you to the eternal table. But here's the reality. You have to put your trust in something. You have to put your trust in something. If you say, no, I don't have to put my trust in anything. I can do this on my own. Your trust is in you. You have to put your trust in something. But you need to know what is trustworthy and what is not trustworthy. And anything in this world that you grab is going to go down with you. The only choice then is to let it go and lay hold of the only thing that is eternal, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We submit to you all the things that we've got, which in the grand scheme of things isn't much. We have possessions aplenty, and they appeal to us greatly. We want them, we desire them, and this season is teaching us to desire them even more. Help us to see that there's no hope in them, that they too will perish. Let us not be like those in Revelation who look at all the things that are burning and are weeping over them because their possessions are gone. 
I pray that we not be like that. Allow us to see that the only thing worth tasting is the bread of life that Christ himself supplies. I pray that you would allow each and every person in this room to taste and see that you are good. Amen.